Hello, welcome back to Resurrections in Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedeno, and today's material would be a bit of a departure from what we normally do. Just a fair warning, no talk about Adam Warlock today. No talk about Thanos. No talk about Marvel Cosmic. No talk about Marvel. Before you get too confused, get your podcatcher or whatever you're using to listen to this and go to the past episodes and scroll down to where it said episodes 40 and 41. And back then we covered the two-issue DC miniseries Bloodbath. Bloodbath was the tie-up miniseries to the crossover that DC did in their annuals that year, which was 1993, Bloodlines. And last year, a group of other podcasters and bloggers and myself decided to have some fun and we did our own little mini crossover event called Best Event Ever, in which we all covered Bloodlines on our different podcasts and blogs. Well, this year, we're doing it again now. And we are doing the annuals crossover from DC from the year before that, 1992, because it's the 25th anniversary of it, actually. We are covering Eclipso, The Darkness Within. And that's what we're doing today. If you're interested, here are some of the other podcasts and blogs that are covering it. Let's see, we got DC Bloodlines, Between the Pages, Pop Culture Palace, Relatively Geeky, Cosmic Treadmill, For the Non-Discerning Reader, Chris on Infinite Earths, The Retroist, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and Om the Gun. And don't worry, links to all these will be put in the show notes, so you can just click on them and make it very easy to find. And you should click on them. So that's what we're doing today. We are going to be covering one of the Eclipso annuals, Superman the Man of Steel Annual 1. By the way, if you are going to be checking all of these out, which I encourage you to do, first of all, if you're looking for things about it, use the hashtag BestEventEver or hashtag EclipsoTDW25. And also, just so you know, if you're reading, if you happen to have all these annuals again and you're looking at them all, we're not covering all of them. We weren't trying to make sure everything was covered. We were just want to make sure everyone at least did one or two. So some of them aren't being covered. But if you really want to find the rest of them, I have a feeling, go check out DC Bloodlines, the blog and podcast. Diablo Frank, who does those, probably will be compelled to cover them all, because I'm fairly certain he covered all of the characters and annuals from Bloodlines that we didn't do last year. So I'm sure he'll cover all the rest of the Eclipso stuff. Probably should give you guys a brief history on Eclipso, since you may or may not know who he is, but since this is a mostly Marvel podcast, there's a chance you might not. Eclipso first appeared in House of Secrets number 61, which had a cover date of December 1956. So he's been around for a while. Eclipso is originally the alter ego of Dr. Bruce Gordon. Bruce Gordon is a scientist specializing in solar energy. And somewhere while doing research, he's attacked by a quote-unquote tribal sorcerer named Moper, Mophir, M-O-P-H-I-R, I'm not sure. And since it's the 1950s, I don't think they ever mentioned exactly where he was. I think to them, tribal was just tribal. Whatever. But anyway, he's attacked by Mophir and scratched with a black diamond that Mophir had. And after that, whenever there's an eclipse, he turned into Eclipso. Not just mentally, physically. There was a purple, like, blue-gray circle covering two-thirds of his face, like an eclipse starting to happen. He'd also gain super strength, partial vulnerability, and eye blasts, and Eclipso was evil. Fully evil, not just like the Hulk where leave Hulk alone. This is just an evil guy. And from what, I saw, what I've seen, most of the adventures seem to revolve around Eclipso doing something to Gordon's solar experiments, and Gordon 
and his fiance's father, Dr. Bennett, his fiance is Mona, working out elaborate plans to kind of stop him, or not to stop him, but like elaborate plans to trap him ahead of time that hopefully would work, you know, because they couldn't do it after the fact. All kind of like Rube Goldberg type machinations and Silver Age trickery. And then at times, of course, Eclipso was used for villains for different DC heroes, including Batman and the Justice League. You know, just a minor league hero, a minor league villain, I should say, not hero. Oh, by the way, real quick, his name is Dr. Bruce Gordon. Apparently, the creators uh, took the names for Bruce Wayne and Jim Gordon. <laughs> I guess it was a little joke for them, and apparently the editors didn't care or didn't notice. During this story, Clips of the Darkness Within, the first bookend issue reveals that, well, it's a retcon, but reveals that Eclipso was, has been fooling Bruce Gordon the entire time. He's not just some supervillain or curse put on him by being scratched by the Black Diamond. The Black, that had nothing to do with it. He is the god of vengeance. And apparently, if you are holding the Black Diamond when angry or upset, you are possessed by Eclipso, which is actually what happened to Bruce Gordon. He was just playing the part of supervillain to try and keep him busy with dealing with the supervillain Eclipso rather than actually continuing his experiments in his solar radiation because light, sunlight specifically, is what actually hurts him. Also, we find out that the Black Diamond is not the only Black Diamond. In fact, it's not the original Black Diamond. There was one called the, a giant one called the Heart of Darkness, and Eclipso was trapped in that years ago. And it was broken up into thousands of little diamonds years ago. And so anyone who's actually holding one of those diamonds, when they become angry, they also become Eclipso. So Eclipso could be like 80 people. The crossover we're doing right now, Eclipso the Darkness Within, was contained in all the annuals from DC from 1992 with the two bookend issues. So it would be Eclipse of the Darkness Within number one, bunch of annuals, and then the story ended in Eclipse of the Darkness Within number two. The annual we are covering today, Superman the Man of Steel Annual 1, is part two in the story, taking place right after the Eclipse of the Darkness Within number one and before the Green Lantern Annual. And if you want to hear more detail about Eclipse's first appearance, you should go listen to the Parliament of Rooks podcast, episode number four. Last year, several of your favorite podcasts and blogs got together to cover one of the greatest comic events ever, DC's 1993 annual crossover, Bloodlines. But it wasn't enough for them to just cover your newest favorites, like Nightblade, Jam, and Shadowstrike. They wanted to do more. This year, they are. In celebration of its 25th anniversary, they will be covering DC's 1992 annual event, Eclipso, The Darkness Within. Join Coffee and Comics, DC Bloodlines, Between the Pages, Pop Culture Palace, Relatively Geeky, Cosmic Treadmill, For the Non-Discerning Reader, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Chris on Infinite Earths, The Retroist, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and On the Gun, and learn who gets possessed, who fights back, who will be canceled, who will die, and who will get their own spinoff. Keep up with the crossover using hashtag best event ever and hashtag Eclipso TDW25 all throughout June 2017. Beware the power of the Black Diamond.
Superman the Man of Steel Annual Number 1 The Gathering Darkness Written by Robert Lorne Fleming Penciled by Chris Wozniak Inked by Brad Venkata Colors Matt Hollingsworth Letter by Albert de Guzman Edited by Mark Carlin and Dan Thorsland Cover by Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Casada. Clark Kent is at the Daily Planet writing a story when Jimmy calls to his attention an attack by a video game type monster that's what Jimmy describes it as, causing destruction at the Metropolis Mall. At the mall, Superman is hampered by his not wanting to put bystanders in jeopardy, and the monster is able to escape. In the chaos left afterwards, he finds Dr. Bruce Gordon and Mona Bennett. Bruce first explains to Superman and Captain Maggie Sawyer, head of the Metropolis Special Crimes Unit, that this monster was part of Eclipso, and now everyone was fooled by Eclipso. He is not a mere monster, madman, or supervillain. He is the god of vengeance. Bruce knows this because he was Eclipso. He explains how first he first became Eclipso after being scratched with a black diamond. However, he was fooled into thinking it was a scratch, not the diamond itself that kept on causing the change. Because he was fooled this way, he spent way too much time looking into a cure and fighting Eclipso, keeping him from doing any more real research into solar energy, which is Eclipso's weakness. The monster that Superman fought at the mall is an Eclipso caused by someone else who had a black diamond. Eclipso is not just Bruce Gordon's darker half, but everyone's. There are thousands of black diamonds cut from the larger original, called the Heart of Darkness. Anyone holding one when they get angry either becomes or manifests an Eclipso. This explanation is secretly watched by the Creeper, who has already been possessed. Eclipse Creeper, that's what I'm going to call him, watches as Dr. Gordon reveals a new weapon he has developed. One that captures and then releases rays of pure sunlight. He destroys the weapon and then takes on Superman, giving him one of the black diamonds in hopes of turning him. It doesn't work, barely, and Eclipse Creeper escapes. Okay, what I decided I want to do is I'm breaking this annual up into four parts, and I'm going to give the synopsis for each part, and then talk about what was in there. So this first part was pages 1 to 13, if you have the annual in front of you. Okay, first thing I want to talk about is the art, which is Chris Wozniak who is an artist who was around a lot in the 90s, not really much since then. I've not always been the biggest fan of his work. I'm not going to say he's horrible, horrible. I'm just not a huge fan. His art kind of has a stylized to it. I have to admit, it's not horrible, horrible in this annual. I don't know if that's him or the inker. Maybe they just work well together. I don't really like his Superman very much. His Superman looks a bit too cartoony. And actually, I'm more talking about the face. His face gets really, his face gets really weird and angular when he yells. Looks wrong. I'm also seeing in here a lot of uh, influence from Rob Liefeld, which makes sense. This was 1992. Rob Liefeld was super hot. A lot of artists were copying Rob Liefeld's look because that's what was selling. Of course, at the time, also, a lot of editors were telling people to copy Rob Liefeld's look because that's what was selling. And I don't remember looking enough about Wozniak's work from then to be able to say, well, he was copying it a lot or he just copied it a few times. Maybe that was, would indicate more the editor's decision as opposed to his. Now, I will say this. I like his Creeper. I think his Creeper looks cool. And because it's a Creeper's a less, estab I mean, a less established character of his own series, unlike Superman, who at this point has four monthly books, I have to wonder if maybe I would have liked Wozniak more if he did his own series. Like his own whether it was creator-owned or he just started it. I'm thinking of Brett Blevins, who is an artist who did had a run on New Mutants. I think he started around issue 
56 or 55, and he ran to like somewhere in the 60s or even early 70s of the title. Anyway, I was not a big, not a fan of his at all on that title. But he was the co-creator. I believe he's the co-creator. At least he was working on it, the art since issue one. So I'm assuming he's the co-creator of another Marvel title called Sleepwalker. And I loved that book and I loved how it looked. I loved his art there. And I think that might have something to do with the fact that he started the book. So he set the look as opposed to changing the look of the New Mutants. And the funny thing is, I was a fan of the New Mutants run when they were drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz, who was also very stylized and definitely changed the look of the book. But maybe that's because it was so... Hmm. I don't know, maybe it was because it was so much a change, as opposed to a partial change, and I was able to accept it more, because it was so different. Back to this story. It starts off in the Daily Planet with Clark Kent writing a story, or as I believe it's Bob Fisher who said this, it starts off like all good Superman stories do, at the Daily Planet. This first part is just an introduction, and that makes sense. This is part two of the Eclipso crossover. Part one was the Eclipso, the Darkness Within, one you know, bookend issue. And it makes sense that if people have missed that and wanted to follow the crossover, this would be the first one they got. So, of course, you wanted to have the most setup in this, one, in this issue. And that's definitely what this first part is. It's all setup. However, it's not just quiet setup. I mean, they definitely jump right into the action. I mean... Page two, we already, and two and three, we already have the fight between Superman and the video game monster. And speaking of which, I'm not sure why it's called a video game monster. It looks kind of like a purple Hulk. And it does have that kind of bluish tinge on its face, which most of the Eclipse characters have, looking like an Eclipse on their face. But it looks kind of like a squid. And it has what looks like dreadlocks coming out of, not the top of his head, from... Between his eyes. I definitely need to find an image of this, or at least I'm going to take a picture and put a link up in the show notes, because this thing is weird. But I'm not sure why Jimmy calls it a video game monster. Well, let's say, what else? Um, well, I like Maggie Sawyer in this. I always liked Maggie Sawyer back then, when she was head of the Metropolis Special Crimes Unit. At times, she almost felt like a... Not really a sidekick, but almost like a occasional sidekick to Superman. Or at least, she was Superman's version of Commissioner Gordon. Except since he's Superman, not Batman, he talked to her more. (laughs) Alright, that's all I can think of right now on that. I guess it's on to part two. Part two, pages 14 to 27. After the Eclipse Creepers escape, Superman, Captain Sawyer, Bruce, and Mona regroup. Superman reveals that his experience in dealing with mind control had helped him resist the Black Diamond, but it affected him enough that he needs to rest before he can search for Eclipso. Until then, Captain Sawyer is going to give Bruce and Mona use of a police helicopter to help them search while they use a device Mona's father designed to track the Black Diamonds. It's not going to be as easy as they hope, however, because we see that Eclipso is hiding out in a crater on the dark side of the moon. In his palace there on the moon, he's holding Lar Gand. Lar was his first super victim, and it made him want more. The story then moves to a gorilla base somewhere in Central America, as an American spy is attempting to sneak onto the base and find a secret weapon. Watching the scientists inside, he finds they have a captive, Phantom Lady. Distracted, the spy is caught by the head of security and brought inside. Once inside, the spy spontaneously combusts and changes his features to reveal himself as Starman. Starman makes short work of the guards, but is attacked by an Eclipse scientist. It was all a trap by Eclipso to capture Starman and use the leaked secret weapon to convert him. 
and it worked. Eclipse Starman chooses to swallow his black diamond, since Starman's unique body will block the tracker Bruce and Mona are using. But that is only partly why Eclipso wanted Starman. Using Starman's shape-shifting abilities, he can now remove the Eclipso mark from his face, becoming the perfect spy. I figure that's a good cliffhanger to end this part on. So, what do I think about this part? First of all, as I'm reading this, I keep wondering if Mona's father is alive, because unfortunately not all of my comics are with me right now, so I have not had a chance to reread Eclipso The Darkness Within number one. But I looked him up on ComicBookDB, and looks like his her father is still alive, so I was wondering about that. Okay, here's the big part of this issue, for anyone who's not read this before. You might be wondering, who's Starman, who is Phantom Lady, and who is Largand? So we're going to go over those briefly. First of all, Starman. Okay, this Starman first appeared in Starman number 1 in 1988. His real name was Walt Payton. He was hiking in the woods, or actually not in the woods, he was hiking out in the mountains. He lives in the American Southwest, I think it was Arizona. And all of a sudden he's struck by this strange energy beam. And he woke up a month later and he had powers. He was stronger, he could fly, he had some limited shape-shifting ability. And he can change his features, his hair, his voice, things like that. Not so much like, let's say, Mystique from the X-Men where he could change his gender. But limited shape-shifting abilities. And he had energy, he had like energy blasts, solar blasts he can shoot off his hands. And as we see here, that's why Eclipso wants him. Because his body is tougher. Yeah, he, he's like a little more durable. So his body is tougher. He was able to, since he swallowed a diamond, he was able to block off any detection. And because Starman can change his voice and uh, the look of his face, you wouldn't realize that he was eclipsed. So Starman had his own series for about 45 issues from 88 to, well, a few months before this, 1992. And actually, there was a an eclipse. That was the last place Eclipso appeared before this storyline. Eclipso appeared in four issues. I think it was the last four issues of Starman. And I know one of the other guys from that are doing the best of it ever are covering those issues. So there'll be links to that. There's also a Starman podcast. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And also, I'm going to put a picture of Starman in the show notes. I'm going to put a picture of all three of them actually: Starman, Phantom Lady, and Largand. So you can at least get a good visual of them. But Starman had a really cool costume, I thought. It was kind of black or grayish black bodysuit, but red boots and red gloves, and a big white star, not in the middle of the chest, more to the side, on the left side, you know, with a red, outli with a red outline on the star. Really cool looking, I thought. The next character is Phantom Lady. She first appeared uh, in 1989 in... Action Comics Weekly number 636. Don't know much about her. I know she did some work with the government, which is why in here she is actually his CIA. Um, in this story, she's helping the CIA and Starman with this little undercover investigation. I don't know why she's going undercover, because Phantom Lady's costume is basically a yellow one-piece bathing suit with green gloves, green boots, and a cape and goggles. I don't think Phantom Lady ever had any powers. I believe she just kind of had these little wrist blasters. I think they shot like a black right, a black light ray. I guess it just blinds people. So she's more one of those just acrobatic type people or fighting people, but with a very, very, very skimpy costume. And I know she had appeared in a couple issues of Starman. They had a, they were at least friends, so I guess that makes sense why she's in the story with him. Okay, the final character, who really only appears for a couple panels here, but still, he's part of the story, 
is Largand. Now, if anyone's watching Supergore right now, you would know him as Monel. Monel's gonna take a minute or two. Okay, Monel first appeared historically in Superboy number 89 in 1961. He, the basic story is that he crash landed, had amnesia, had powers of the same as Superboy's, and there was some kind of note from Jor-El, so Superboy thought maybe he was an older brother, and since he Mon-El couldn't remember his real name, he gave, Superboy gave him the name Mon-El. Literally, Superboy's Kryptonian last name is L. He found him on a Monday, Mon-El. Throughout the story, uh, turns out he wasn't po- you know, there was a, Superboy thought he was lying to him at some point, gave him fake kryptonite to kind of prove that he wasn't a Kryptonian, Monel actually started getting sick from it. Went, aha, you're a liar. He went, no, this is now the shock of poison has caused me to regain my memories. It was very easy in the Silver Age full of stuff like that to happen quickly. And it was the fact that it was a hunk of lead that was painted green. And apparently Monel's from a planet called Daxum, and their lead is poisonous to them. Except on that kryptonite, lead poisoning doesn't go away once you move it away. Lead poison, lead poisoning just kills them. And so Superboy put him in the Phantom Zone, because it was his fault, promised to find a way to cure him. Never did. And a thousand years later, a cure was found by the Legion of Superheroes, and they released him, and Monel became a member, and was a member ever since. That was until Crisis on Infinite Earths, and then there was a whole kind of bit of craziness, because then Superboy couldn't exist, and Superboy was a member of the Legion, and they had a do things with Monel to make him the person who did a lot of stuff in the 20th century that Superboy did to make the Legion be formed. So this new version of him first appeared in Legion, and that's actually, if you look for the title, it's actually L period, E period, G period, I period, O period, N period. It was an acronym. It stand, stood for Licensed Extragovernmental Intercellar Operatives Network. Basically, it's like a 20th century legion of superheroes, but a bit more gritty and not so superhero-ish. Well, Largan first appeared in there and then traveled to Earth and was captured by Eclipso. So basically, he's a guy who's like Superman, except he's not vulnerable to kryptonite. This Largan will have more to do. He's really, in all the annuals, if you see him, he's really just going to stand still like a statue. He really only gets play in the second bookend issue, Eclipse of the Darkness within number two. I hope I didn't make that too confusing. <laughs> All right, so other thoughts on this part. Well, I have to say, I like Eclipso's plan. I mean, that's great. You're trying to take over all these superheroes. Find the one where you can, like I said, he swallowed the gem. So, great. Someone whose body is dense enough that they're not going to be able to track the gem using you. And you can cover up the fact that you're possessing him. He's also one of the heroes that has solar powers. So that's his ener- that's his uh, weakness. Now that's one less person to use that weakness against him. Smart. I mean, I like that. I also didn't mind the artwork in this this part as much. And I'm noticing that now there's sometimes I've read Wozniak before where I really didn't like the artwork at all. So I'm not sure. Maybe it's the inker. Who's the inker again? Let me look. Brad Vancata. I'm gonna attribute some of that to Brad. But also when he draws Superman. He seems to have a problem with Superman. His Superman seems to get a little goofy in the face at times, a little cartoonish when everything else isn't. Starman looks pretty damn good, actually. I like his Starman. So I would have been, I'm fine with that. There's a nice page, splash page, 
Not splash page. Nice big panel of Starman on page 24. If I can't find that image, I'm going to take a picture and put it up in the notes. Or actually, I'll put it up on the uh, Tumblr page. It looks really pretty cool, I thought. So, like I said, at least in this issue, I can't say about his body of work, but in this issue, my problem with Wozniak is mostly Superman. And if maybe he toned down some of his Liefeld copying, that wouldn't hurt. But his Liefeld copying isn't really being horrible here, so I don't have a problem with that. You know, it's 92. He's going to copy the Hawkeye. He's not, like I said, my issue is his Superman. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? On to part three, which is pages 28 to 40 if you're following along. So we have an unnamed preteen boy, or teenage boy, not sure which. He gets home late for dinner and he's in trouble with his parents. While he's getting yelled at, he at least is happy that he still has his lucky stone, which is, as we can see, one of the black diamonds. Meanwhile, Superman's looking for him using the tracker given to him by Bruce and Mona. Back at the kid's house, dinner is not going very well, and the kid, poor kid gets punched by his father. Pissed off, naturally, the kid pukes up that same Eclipso monster that Superman fought in the first part of the story. Now, the positive thing about that is that this sets off Superman's tracker, and he's able to find the kid's house. Though the refrigerator that flies, he sees flying into the air, which Superman does catch, and also, the refrigerator-sized hole in the roof of the house probably was also a decent clue. Either way, Superman and the Eclipse of Monster fight until Bruce Gordon shows up and tosses the Man of Steel the weapon he had designed to fight Eclipso, his solar trap. Panicked, the Eclipso Monster grabs the kid and threatens to snap his neck. Superman puts the weapon down but uses a puddle nearby, shooting the light into it which refracts into the monster, destroying it. All seems to be ending pretty well including, rather quickly I thought, for the family. However, in Phoenix, Arizona, the Eclipse Starman arrives and breaks into a department store. Interesting. Later on that night, Dr. Kitty Faulkner is woken up by her doorbell at 4 a.m. She opens the front door to find a ring box on her doorstep and a ring with one of those black diamonds inside. In tree, she puts it on and is then confronted by Dr. Thomas Moyers, a man who tried to have her killed. Angry, she transforms into a rampage. So there's the interesting thing about this story. It feels like it kind of ends on page 37. Yeah, Eclipse is still out there, but this was the first annual in a several annual crossover event about Eclipso. We knew Eclipso was not going to get stopped by the end of this annual. But the Eclipse monster and the Black Diamond, that starts the story off. I mean... Monsters first seen on page two, fighting Superman. Uh, actually, 
You don't see the monster on page two. Page three. <laughs> you see Superman flying there. But okay, page three. He stopped. That's over. Kind of like the end of the story. And I can obviously see why this kid would be pissed enough to make this Eclipso monster. Uh, getting punched by your dad at dinner? Yeah. I can't blame him. I did think that part was wrapped up a little quickly. I mean, at the end, okay, they're at the... Afterwards, that battle's over of Superman and the monster. Um, assuming they're at the hospital, they don't specify. It looks like it could be a hospital or a police department. I'm assuming, since the kid was injured, that it was probably at the hospital. And you have Superman, Bruce, and Mona watching the family. And Mona, one of them says to him, You did a wonderful thing helping that family, Superman. The other one tells him, They look like they're going to work out their problems now. Superman replies, Don't thank me. Credit Eclipso for that one. Those parents were frightened and taking a hard look at themselves. That just seems a bit easy and pat to end child abuse. I mean, just boom. I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, maybe it was the time. is 92. Maybe they were just starting to get into things about that and really didn't understand what they were doing. They were just starting to do it. But I looked some stuff up, and the New Warriors over at Marvel this same year was doing a story about how one of their members had been abused by his father and the ramifications of that. And then later on, they even get into further about the, the origins of that and how the cycle of abuse started with his father, you know, with his father being abused himself. So I really can't let him slack off that way just because of the time. Because, no, there were other comics doing things about that much better. I do like how Superman was pissed off enough about it that he says, That father broke his boy's nose. Frankly, I've been holding a black diamond. I would have gone after him myself. I really can't argue with that either. But yeah, so that whole story, that whole bit's over. I like the fight between Superman and the monster. I'm still not sure how it's called a video game monster. Like I said, it looks like a purple Hulk mixed with a squid face. But okay. Then it ends. And now we kind of, the rest of the issue is kind of an epilogue. Kind of setting off a subplot for the, with Starman and Eclipso for the rest of the annuals. We also are introduced to a new character here, Dr. Kitty Faulkner, who also was somebody who had appeared in the Starman series. So this annual series, this book seems to be definitely like an also being an epilogue to the Starman series. Now I'm not going to get much into Kitty and Rampage right now because in the next part they actually recap her origin. So we'll talk about her after the last part. Part 4, which is pages 41 to 54. Dr. Moyers is taunting Rampage by relating her origin, reminding her how he tried to kill her, and then once she became Rampage, how he tried to use her to kill for him. This, of course, pisses her off, and since we already know that that jewel on the ring that she put on is one of the black diamonds, boom, Rampage has been eclipsed. His job done, plan worked out well, Dr. Moyers shapeshifts back into Starman and congratulates himself on not only a plan well done, but gaining control over now two of Earth's solar power beings, as Rampage's powers apparently are solar-based. However, in the middle of his self-congratulation, he is still attacked by the Eclipse Rampage. He's a little confused, but she reminds him that once you've been taken over by the Black Diamond, yeah, Eclipse controls you, but he doesn't fully control you until you follow through on the target of your rage. So since it was Starman impersonating Dr. Moyers that pissed her off, Starman's the one she has to kill, even though they're both Eclipso. While they're fighting, Superman shows up. He and Bruce and Mona have been tracking the diamonds, and it conveniently led them to Phoenix right then. 
Starman shapeshifts himself back to look normal and teams up with Superman to deal with, I don't know, Rampage went crazy. What's going on? What's Eclipso? And Rampage actually does a little bit well for herself until Superman decides the quickest and easiest way to deal with this is he grabs her and flies her east. Because by this point it's about five something, six in the morning. He just flies her east until they hit the sunset and boom, that frees her. Back in Phoenix, Eclipse Starman is left alone with Bruce Gordon and Mona and decides this would be a great time to kill Bruce Gordon. But Sunset is coming there very soon as well and he decides it is better to leave. Starman has still been possessed, but Rampage at least has been freed. And that's the end of Superman the Man of Steel Annual Number 1. Here we go, last part of the story. Right off we get the origin of Rampage where Dr. Moyer shut down the safety systems of some experiment she was doing, which caused an explosion that almost killed her, but instead transformed her into Rampage. Now, when Kitty Faulkner becomes Rampage, basically, she transforms and becomes a seven-foot, super-strong, orange-skinned giant with an orange mohawk. Again, I'll put a picture in the link to her in the show notes so you can see her. So She's a Superman character originally. First appeared, it says, it looks like Superman number seven. When she turned into Rampage, he apparently enslaved her at the point and uh, tried to use her against a politician trying to ruin him. So Dr. Moyes is not a nice person to her, so Starman definitely picked a good person to impersonate to piss her off. I do like the fact that because of that, she has to still try and kill him, even though they're both Eclipse, so it's amusing. And it's also, it goes to the thing with magic a lot of times. There are rules, even the ridiculous rules. It's one of the things I say about when people talk about gremlins. Oh, well, it's always after midnight somewhere. Oh, they're magic. So it's the rules are magic. It just can't be after midnight where they are. That's all it counts. <laughs> Again, here's the rules of this magic. You piss off Eclipso and you turn, you, you piss, get pissed off and turn into Eclipso, you're going to kill whoever it is you're pissed you off, even if that's also Eclipso. And I'm, I like their battle together. That's a good part where Rampage is thinking, well, the Eclipse Rampage is thinking, I'll sneak up behind him and stomp him to death, but she misses because Starman Eclipse Starman yells at her, We cannot sneak up on one another. We're the same person. We share the same mind. I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking it. <laughs> so that was amusing. Now, the problem I have here is when Superman and Bruce Gordon and Mona show up. It's like, really? You have a thing, a tracker, to track these black diamonds. And you go out of your way in the story to tell us there are thousands of them. And the only two you happen to find is one on the east coast of Metropolis and this one in Arizona on the other side of the country, right when they're fighting. Really? It's just a bit convenient, I think. I know they needed a reason to get them out there to this part, but too convenient. But to be fair, I do like how Superman ends it by grabbing Rampage and flying her towards the sunrise. And at least it's not one of those fiction things where it's 11 o'clock at night and 20 minutes later, oh, the sun's coming up. He woke her up at like four something in the morning, so couldn't have gone that far away to get the sun to sunrise. Though, yeah, I'm going to have to show some pictures from here because there's this horrible, horrible panel of Superman. It's on page 50 if you're reading the book. It's on the bottom. It's a horrible panel of his face. But... I like the same, I like the Starman and Rampage, so you got a lot. I mean, either way, we got a lot of Starman in here, which is good since he draws Starman better. I mean, it's almost a Starman and Superman annual, which is fine because Superman had four annuals this year. He could share one.
only other thing to talk about this issue right now is that it just kind of, it's kind of a too bit, I don't know. The ending just seemed a little rushed. Starman flies away instead of killing Bruce and Mona because he knows Sunrise is coming up. Superman flies back with the unconscious, well, used to be Rampage and now Kitty, turned back into Kitty Faulkner. Carrying her with Bruce and Mona, they go back to the plane. It ends with Bruce asking Mona, you up to one more flight, Mona? Anything to relax before sundown, Bruce. These last few nights have been murder. That's the end. Kind of feels like a uh, bad 70s cop show or something. I don't know. Age Mystery Box Grown Ass Geeks Irregularly Scheduled Programming These shows and others to come can all be found on the Pop Culture Palace Presents Podcast The official podcast for the Pop Culture Palace website Find it on Podium, iTunes and the popculturepalace.com starting June 2017 Feedback time. I'd love to get feedback from you guys. Tell me what your thoughts are. Tell me your opinions. Tell me what you like or you don't like. How can you send feedback? Well, you got a couple different ways. We have a Facebook page. Log into Facebook. Go in the search box. Type in... You can type in the show name, but honestly, you can just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos, and we are usually the second or third thing that pops up on there. Also have our page on Tumblr. ResurrectionsAdamWarlock.tumblr.com We're on Twitter. At AdamThanosPod. Send an email, resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Don't forget, I have a second podcast starting now in association with the Pop Culture Palace website, thepopculturepalace.com, and the podcast is called the, well, the Pop Culture Palace Presents Podcast. Now, I want to continue on by doing recent last few episodes, thanking the people who have been following our page on Tumblr. So, thank you, Lupus Come, Triple X Hotbody, Triple X. I'm probably certain that that one is probably a bot, but they're following me, so I don't care. J. Josh Frank, Gothzilla, and Fiery Killrock. Also, when I put the episodes up in Twitter, I've been having more and more people liking and retweeting the episode, and I want to thank those people. Episode 60, which was our Thanos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe episode, was retweeted by Out of the Fridge, X Project, Goat Boy, and Jason Snick Venable. By the way, Jason Snick Venable is the host of the podcast that goes Snicked, which is a podcast about Wolverine, and he had me on his most recent episode, episode 237. Also, Goat Boy is one of the hosts of the Out of the Fridge podcast, comic book podcast, so give them a check out. And the show, that episode was also liked by Out of the Fridge, four guys in a comic, Goat Boy and Jason Snick Venable. Four guys in a comic is another po- comic book podcast that I listen to, so give them a check. All right, and if you're looking for other ways you can find this podcast, or if you're telling somebody about it, they're asking, well, how do I find it? Well, this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, the Internet Archive at archive.org, and this show can now be found on Stitcher. In case you don't know what Stitcher is, Stitcher is Radio On Demand, a free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows 
plus discovered from 20,000 others. Available on iOS, Android, Nook, and iPad. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. That's it for this episode. Thank you for indulging me with this little uh, company change (laughs) as we covered something from DC instead of Marvel. I do hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed it enough to take a look at the other podcasts and blogs that are involved in the best event ever in covering Eclipse of the Darkness of Wind on its 25th anniversary. Links to all those other shows and blogs will be in the show notes. Don't forget the podcast that goes snick with episode 237 that guest stars me. Uh, Jason and I, we cover Wolverine 11 through 16, which is the Johanna Stone affair. We'll be back to normal next episode. Uh, Brian will be back, and we'll be covering Captain Marvel 32. See you then. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. That's what you want to hear me going. Okay, it's enough stupidity.